Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you at this time to open to the Gospel. As I said, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, This year we've been exploring the big picture of the Bible, one book at a time. If you're just joining us this morning, we just finished all 39 books of the Old Testament, which is just a great accomplishment. (laughs) Let's just give it to ourselves. Uh, Which means today we actually flip the page to the New Testament. But as you flip this one page to Matthew, realize that that single page represents about four centuries of waiting. So the last word of the Hebrew Bible, how the, how the Hebrew Bible is organized, which is the last book is Second Chronicles. And the last word of Second Chronicles, which means the last word of the Hebrew Bible is go up. The Persian king Cyrus says to Israel, go up. Make the long but hopeful climb from the dark depths of exile to the bright heights of Zion. Go up. Go up and build. Go up and build the kingdom of God. Go up and build Eden again. But if you've been with us, you know this doesn't really happen The climb to Zion is equal parts tears and cheers. If you remember, the young are rejoicing when the temple foundation is reset, but the elderly with their memory and with their wisdom are weeping. They know this ain't it. Something isn't complete. And so there's a waiting. There's a waiting in this single page. In this single page, there is a 400 year wait for God to finally bring a king and to establish his kingdom, his forever kingdom that was promised ages ago. And so it's no small thing to turn this page to Matthew this morning. Matthew, in other words, breaks the pause. Matthew stops the waiting. And notice how he does it. If you have your Bibles open, you can just take a look. Right at the very beginning, he breaks silence with a genealogy, with a family tree. And I like to think of the single arch bridge over the New River. If you've ever driven by it or been under this single arch bridge, I like to think of this genealogy as a bridge that stretches all the way back. If you take a look to Abraham, verse 2. The very beginning, if you remember, God's rescue mission. And it stretches all the way back to King David, where we learn that God's blessing So all of the nations will come through a king and a kingdom. And this bridge crosses a 400 year chasm. And it touches ground with the birth of Messiah, which means king. The anointed one. The long awaited king and kingdom is here. And so Matthew is, I think for us, a biography, a tour map. And an invitation. It's a biography of a king. 
This is the king we've been waiting for. So the book of Hebrews actually says that the best of the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, is a shadow. It's a shadow cast by Jesus himself. And so you can learn a lot by studying a shadow, which we've been doing. But today, friends, we meet the king himself. As Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, every Old Testament story whispers his name. Today, friends, today we hear the shout. It's a biography. It's also a tour map of a kingdom. So Matthew doesn't just present or declare a king, but it actually demonstrates and it shows us and it invites us to see a kingdom. So scholars have noticed that Matthew is a very organized gospel. It's a very organized book. It's embedded in this gospel is actually five segments of teaching. If you have one of those red letter Bibles, you can notice it because all of a sudden there's just red on every page for a while. And then it's black again. And it's red on every page for a while. And then it's black again. And it's red on every page. It does that five times. Why? Because there's five segments of teaching from Jesus embedded throughout this gospel. You could call them five books. Maybe even five books of the kingdom. Like the five books of Israel called Torah. This is the king, though, that we have been waiting for. And this is what the kingdom looks like, Matthew says. But that's not all. This book is even shaped to make this point. This is one of many ways you can outline Matthew. But what I want you to notice is that even the shape of Matthew presents for us a kingdom Shape. And so the first and the last sections of Matthew deal with the birth and then the death and resurrection of the king. The second and the second to last, blessings of the kingdom and woes living outside the kingdom. And on down, you see the symmetry. And at the very center is kingdom stories where Jesus is telling stories about what life in the kingdom is like. Jesus is the king who ushers in, in other words, an alternate realm, a different zip code. A different flag, a different allegiance, a different way of seeing the world, a different way of relating to others. Which means, ultimately, Matthew is an invitation to come and see. To enter his kingdom. It's been said that you can tell somebody to do something and they might listen to you for a day. But if you tell them a story, you might change their life forever. Jesus knows this. And that's why the kingdom stories are right in the center of Matthew's gospel. He is saying, come, come and see, come and live this kingdom life. His kingdom stories press the question, will you enter? Have you entered? And what's keeping you? So Matthew is a biography of a king, a tour map of the kingdom, and an invitation. But here's the thing, and here's what we'll focus on this morning. This king and this kingdom is not at all what we would expect. If we were writing the drama, this is not what we would write. And so let's pray briefly before we found out why. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer, Holy Spirit, we ask you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see Jesus and so that we would this morning actually worship Jesus. As we pray every Sunday, we need the miracle from you that would make Jesus beautiful to us. What we need, Lord, is 
changed desires. What we need is inside-out work. And you promised to do that with your word, and as we see, that is what life in your kingdom is all about. And so we ask in King Jesus' name, make it so. And make it so this morning through your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I thought I knew my grandma very well, but it turns out I was just relying on what other people said about my grandmother. So she lived a few hours away from me, and we would visit her from time to time, not often enough. But as a kid, I didn't actually do the work of getting to know her. I just accepted what everybody said about her, and I enjoyed her food. Which I think we do all the time, actually, with people that are close to us in proximity. But as we know, just because we are close in proximity to somebody doesn't mean that we are relationally close to that person. I see the same four or five people every day at the coffee shop I like to go to. When I'm working there, I sit five feet away from these folks who also work at the coffee shop. But just because we share the same circulating air of this coffee shop does not mean that I actually know them. I devise all kinds of, I think I know them, I actually have all kinds of stories about what their life is like, just judging by, you know, observation. But I don't know them at all. But, if I were to ask questions, if I were to let them speak for themselves, I might be surprised what I learned. And the same can be said about Jesus, couldn't it? We are super familiar with Jesus. Even if you didn't grow up in church this morning and you're here, you are still growing up in this cultural moment familiar with Jesus. But let me ask you, do we know him? Do we know who he is? This is a terrifying verse for somebody like me who's like a professional religious person. But this is what Jesus says in Matthew 22. He says, you mistake, and he's speaking to the religious professionals of his day. He's saying, you mis- your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures. Now, they had them memorized, okay? They had them memorized. But Jesus says, and you don't know the power of God. So friends, have we been over-dependent on what others say about Jesus or what others say about Christianity? What if familiarity with Jesus has stopped our ears from actually listening to him? What if he, this familiarity has stunted our curiosity about who he is or blunted the surprise of who he really is? I mean, what if we need to be surprised by Jesus again? Or maybe for the first time. People all over the world, they pay thousands of dollars to fly to the island of Trinidad. I'm going to put you on the spot, sorry. They do this to see super rare birds through their binoculars. But my friend Alan, many of you know Alan, who grew up in Trinidad, cannot understand why. Because these rare birds are not rare to him. They're unremarkable, but they're not unremarkable to the person who has been searching for them their whole life. Do you see? And the same is true of Jesus. We can get bored of Jesus if we're not careful. Sometimes we need to be around someone who gives up everything to see Jesus. Sometimes we need to be around somebody who gives up everything to see Jesus. Those of us who are over familiar with them. Why? To wake us up again. Well, Matthew does that. He is a man who gave up everything 
for Jesus. And he wants us in this gospel to see why. Matthew encounters the welcome of Jesus in the tax booth. Which is by itself shocking. It could be an entire sermon series in and of itself. But the true king of Israel, right? Jesus walks into the business office of a corrupt Israelite who sold his soul to the Roman king, the Greco-Roman king, who is a professional grifter. Walks into the business office of someone who is irreligious with all of his irreligious friends, who regularly steals money from God's own people for his own gain. And what do you think happens when the king of all encounters this man? It's shocking. It's surprising. Matthew knows the surprise of the kingdom because Matthew experienced the surprising grace of King Jesus. And then guess what? When, 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 that, when Jesus says, follow me, guess what? Matthew follows him. Of course he does. And then he wants all of his friends to experience the same welcome. He was surprised by the king and he wants you to be as well. And there's two ways that Matthew unpacks this surprise. Reversal and rescue. This king surprises with his reversals. And this king surprises with his rescue. And I want to look at both this morning. So first, Matthew surprises with Jesus' reversals. Now, this is not new or novel for me. Preachers and scholars have all described the kingdom of Jesus upside down, inside out. And first, last. It's just a kingdom of reversals. Over and over and over and over again. Jesus reverses everything we've come to expect in the kingdom of this world. And so his kingdom is upside down first. And we see this with his exercise of authority. Matthew is all about the authority of Jesus. He's constantly highlighting this one word, authority. And so on the one hand, Jesus has ultimate authority, and Matthew wants us to know this. So in 9.8, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. And at the very, very end of Matthew, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority. That's a lot of authority. It can't get much more than this, okay? All authority. All. The word is all. The word is all. That means all. Okay, so all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It doesn't get more authoritative than this. But Jesus' exercise of said authority is utterly and completely shocking. Jesus called his disciples together and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So this is how they're used to authority being done in those days. Lording it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. He's talking to kingdom citizens. His disciples. In my kingdom, Jesus says, whoever wants to become great amongst you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served. But to serve and to give his life as a ransom. For many. So Jesus is a king who uses his authority precisely to serve. He uses his power to give, not take. And you see this over and over again with his miracles. So just to take one example in the Gospel of Matthew. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Jesus. And he drove out the spirits with a word. And he healed all the sick. Why? Well, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah here, this is the suffering servant this is the one that Isaiah prophesied about who would come and who would be a king, but would be one who suffers. 
on behalf of Israel and for Israel. And so he quotes Isaiah, he took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. What's important about this? Well, what's important about this is that Jesus does not perform his miracles to impress. I had that idea when I was a kid growing up in church. that The whole reason that Jesus went around healing was just to say, hey, look at me. I'm God. Aren't I awesome? I'm God. I can do things that you can't. No, no, no. That's not at all what Jesus is doing. When Jesus is healing, he's previewing resurrection life when he comes to make all things new again. What Jesus is doing when he's doing his miracles is he's bearing upon himself our infirmities and our diseases. He is being a suffering servant. He is not being a show off. Amen? This is our Lord. His kingdom is upside down. He is a wounded healer. With utmost authority, he reverses the effects of the fall and at the greatest cost to himself. His kingdom is also, though, inside out. This means two things. First of all, that Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew doesn't honor outside-in obedience. And he also doesn't impose outside-in obedience. He doesn't honor it, so he calls the religious class of his day hypocrites. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips outside, but their hearts inside are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And Jesus called the crowd and said, listen and understand. What goes into somebody's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out, what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. So Jesus is showing us all that his kingdom is one that is inside out. That word hypocrite is a technical word for, for an actor. And he's saying to the religious folks of the day, you are acting. Your obedience to God is merely acting. Outside-in obedience is worthless to King Jesus. He doesn't honor it. But he doesn't impose it either. He doesn't force us into obedience. That would be external obedience by itself. Instead, he draws us with his beauty. He doesn't force a bent knee like a tyrant would. His subjects willingly fall on their knees. And wash his feet with their hair. Loyalty in his kingdom is inside out. We see this in chapters 5 through 7. These are very famous chapters. The Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus deepens the reach of God's demands. He deepens the reach of God's demands. It's not, for instance, just adultery that grieves God. But it's lust. He deepens the demands of the law. And yet, Jesus also, at the same time, deepens the reach of God's mercy. It's a two-for-one, friends. He says, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, those who know their need. We don't know our need until and unless Jesus deepens the law. We think that in our external obedience, we're doing fine. And Jesus comes along and in a severe mercy deepens the, the sort of reach of God's law. And at the same time, deepens the reach of God's mercy. Those who know their need alone, says King Jesus, is qualified to receive God's mercy. And this creates inside out disciples. Inside out kingdom citizens. And then finally, his kingdom is first, last. So, King Jesus, 
he looks and he goes to the very back of the line to gather his citizens. You know, those, the power brokers of the day or the sort of talent show judges of the day, the folks that they overlook is who Jesus goes searching for. Matthew knew about the back of the line. We talked about his come to Jesus moment. He was in the back of the line. So starting a little ahead of the section that you're seeing, it says in verse 9 of chapter 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. So the same powerful word that can send demons running says, follow me to Matthew. And Matthew, guess what? Followed him. It says that he got up and he followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, which implies that in Matthew's immediate sort of aftershock of the welcome of Jesus, what does Matthew do? He just goes home, he cooks a meal, and he invites all of his friends. And he says, Jesus, you come too. I want them to meet you. And if you've so overcomplicated like me what evangelism is, then Matthew can be your guide. Because what Matthew tells us all is that simply cooking a meal, inviting your friends over, and saying, Jesus, you come too. I want them to meet you. Is it not a bad place to start? Well, the Pharisees see this, and they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to the back of the line. So my wife, she has the sort of honor of serving on a board that gives out an annual scholarship to students who apply. And I can only imagine the amount of effort and maybe some of the, even the effort that some of you all have put into these resumes to get these scholarships. Not just the weeks it takes to type them up, but the years of effort preceding it, the GPA effort, the extracurricular activity effort, the, these days the not-for-profit effort that folks go in to building these resumes. Well, could you imagine, just could you imagine if there was a prestigious university out there that did not send acceptance letters based on merit, but instead sent acceptance letters based on weakness and abject need? What if the only requirement was a long list of failures? A low GPA. Royally messing it up in life and living with the consequences every day. If you feel disqualified to be admitted into Jesus' kingdom, He came for you. He came for the sick. He came for the despised, the confused, the faithless. Jesus came for you. If you have nothing on your spiritual resume except a whole long list of failures and a whole big pile of need, then Jesus, in your empty hands of faith, puts your resume right on top of it. In chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who's the greatest in this kingdom of yours? Who's the greatest in this kingdom that we've been longing for? And what did Jesus do? He called a little child to him. And in those days, kids were in the back of the line. What did they do? They just brought need. They just brought need. They weren't 
givers, they were takers. And so they were in the very back of the line in that culture. Jesus radically turns that upside down and says, no, these image bearers who know their need, they, they belong in the kingdom. Jesus gives them the entire kingdom. And if this is surprising to you, that just means Matthew did his job. Be shocked by the reversals of King Jesus. But that's not all. We also have the King's rescue. The King's rescue. Remember, the hope of a Messiah was, in those days, military. God's people were struggling under an empire. And so a king of Israel needed to first defeat the empire of evil before he could establish his kingdom and his throne. Right? That makes sense. It was a military hope. There needed to be a war. There needed to be a defeat. There needed to be a victory before there could be a peaceful kingdom. Right now it's all chaos. So the king needs to come and make that so. But the way that Jesus does this is absolutely shocking. He rescues in three surprising ways. And that top word should say rescue. First by sacrifice. He rescues by sacrifice. Jesus doesn't rescue by gathering an army to destroy Rome. But instead he rescues by allowing the army of Rome to destroy him. That's what the crucifixion is. He rescues us by allowing the army of Rome to destroy him. Scholars point out that Jesus is depicted all throughout Matthew as a warrior. And you're thinking, how is that possible? That's not the Jesus that I meet. And that's exactly right. That is the surprise that we need to get reacquainted with. Because the way that Jesus is a warrior, the way that Jesus defeats Rome is not through their bloodshed, but his own. The way that he defeats Satan and demons and sin is through quiet faithfulness, through quoting scripture in the desert, through sacrifice. Today's Palm Sunday, King Jesus enters his kingdom, (laughs) enters Jerusalem on a what? A peaceful animal, a donkey, not a war horse. He tells Peter, put away your sword. And instead allows the sword of Satan and sin to slay him in Peter's place. And in yours too. His rescue is also by substitution. In every way, Jesus rescues us by stepping into our place, by being a substitute for us. He lives for us. Just like a substitute teacher who who teaches for you, so Jesus also lives for you. So chapters 1 through 4 of Matthew is basically a retell of all of Israel's story. And if you haven't followed with us, this is very meaningful. Jesus is born among us, and he is rescued through the Red Sea, In his baptism. And what happens immediately after his baptism? He, as it says, sent into the wilderness. Just like Israel before. But unlike Israel, Jesus is utterly faithful and without sin. So where Israel fails, Jesus is faithful. He lives as our substitute. His record of beautiful faithfulness is credited to us as the Apostle Paul. So that right now, if your need is in Jesus, so that right now, as you said, surely as you're sitting in this chair, the love, the love that we see of Jesus in the Gospels 
is given to you and is credited to you. It's sort of downloaded to your bank account so that you have it all and never will lose it. And that is the scandal, yes, the shock of Jesus. He came to live for you. But that's not all. He also came to die for you. We know that from Deuteronomy that there are curses for covenant disobedience. That's the way God set it up. We don't get a vote. But these curses stand over those who disobey His law. But God in His love wanted to remove the curse and remain true to His royal word. How is that possible? Think about that. How can you be true to your word and also draw near to your people? Well, the sacrificial system in Leviticus is your first hint. It's your first whisper. But Jesus on the cross, friends, is the shell. God wanted to remove the curse and remain true to his word. And on the cross, the covenant curses were stacked on Jesus and not on you. The judge became judged so that you never will be. And so think about it. Call to mind, if you, if you dare, the things that you are certain are unforgivable. The things that you are certain brings down God's curse. And you're living with that day in, day out. You don't say it, but as David Brooks put it, it's like, it's like coins in the back of the car that kind of shake around as you drive. Or it's like that rock in your shoe as you walk. You constantly notice it. Well, I want you to know, Matthew wants you to know, and friends, Jesus wants you to know that his righteousness covers you. And his death is all of God's covenant curse upon himself. Therefore, there is no condemnation and no curse for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Do you believe that? You need to. You need to. And he finally rescues by sending, by sending us, by sending his kingdom citizens, his church. He, he, he reigns in a very surprising way, in other words. The reign of King Jesus is one in which he rescues us and then he sends us on his mission. What do I mean? Well, if we are most fully alive, think about this. When we are a part of something that is bigger than us and that thing is true and that thing is beautiful and that thing is absolutely rich and right and good. If we are more fully alive when we are a part of something bigger than we are that is true, that is good, and that is beautiful, then the most loving thing that God can do is to send us on His mission. And that's what Jesus does for us. He rules by shockingly making us into co-rulers. It's crazy. He entrusts broken men and women like me and like you who know their need to advance the kingdom. He gives us the Holy Spirit to do that. He leads us still by the Holy Spirit. But He gives them, He gives us these five books, this new kingdom life in the kingdom. And He says, go, 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 make disciples, grow the kingdom, go, multiply, expand my reign in the hearts of the world all across it. He picks weak people who will witness to God's power. So if you feel weak and unequipped, that's exactly who he looks for. He goes to the end of the line so that his power, as Paul puts it, will be made manifest. If you are very, very dependent on your own strength, if you're very dependent on your own resume, then you will show yourself to the world, not King Jesus. But if you know your need, then you will show King Jesus to the world. And that is his surprising, sending, rescue. 
A recent poll said that most Americans spend a third of their life in boredom. 131 days to be exact. I don't know how they get that number. Makes me doubt the poll, but hey, that's what polls are for. It rings true, though, in my experience. I actually think 131 days of boredom is a low number. And I wonder what that number would be today, because that poll was in 2019. Boredom. Boredom. And if I can offer a suggestion, I think one of the reasons many of us struggle with boredom in life is because of the story that the world is telling. The story that the world is telling is a mission. It's a kingdom mission. It's the kingdom of the world, but it's a kingdom mission. And the powers that be in this kingdom mission story is saying, go, go and make disciples. But, these, but this discipleship is to whatever is happening in this world. It's not to King Jesus. And if I were to map this story of the world into three parts, I would say, number one, there is no overarching story to the world, number one. Number two, you only have your individual story. So it's like a fractured story in which all of our stories are what matters, not big overarching story. And you are the hero of that story. Doesn't that ring true? There's no overarching story to the world. You have your own individual story to live, and you are the hero of that story. And if we buy into this, even uncritically buy into this, then I think that will lead to two things. Burnout and boredom. Burnout and boredom. Can I get an amen? Is that, is that where you are this morning? You're so bored of living for yourself. Or maybe you're just spinning your tires trying to save the world. Doing these rescue missions to impress others around you and even to impress yourself or to even have a sense of justification of existence. I need, to, I need to be the hero of this story and therefore I must do this. And when you don't and you fail miserably, you spin out and you burn out. It's boring or it's burnout. It's one or the other. But what if we threw that story in the trash, friends? What if we heard Jesus telling a different story this morning? Kingdom stories of his reign, of his rule. And what if we lived in that? What if you even this morning, for the first time in your life, stepped into that story in which there is a true story of the world? God made it. We broke it, but Jesus is fixing it. And what if that mega story had one hero and it isn't you? What if that hero is Jesus? And then what if he entrusts you to be on mission with him? Allow me to ask, are you bored or burnt out by society's expectation to be the hero? Or your own expectation to be the hero? Well, good news, Jesus is the hero. He is the rescuer. But here's why the Bible is amazing. Here's why the gospel is surprising. Jesus is the hero, but he elevates you at the same time. He rescues you to be a lowercase r rescuer. He humbles us even as he raises us up. Following Jesus, I think, gives us a true, the truest picture of what it means to be a human. 
dependent. Yes, like fiercely dependent. We are not independent creatures. We are designed to be dependent on the Lord. So dependent. But friends, dangerous in our love. Dangerous in our love because we have nothing to lose, nothing to prove. We are free. Because we're on his mission, not ours. He is the hero, not us. This should cause us to be risk takers in Jesus' name. This should cause us to say something to our neighbor when we've been withholding all these years. This should cause us to do something that would be sacrificial but would bless someone else. This should cause us to be dangerous in our love because Jesus said, you are my co-ruler in this kingdom and you are advancing my mission. Isn't that amazing? There's nothing more empowering than that. And so if Jesus surprises us with his reversals, and if Jesus surprises us with his rescue, then let me just ask you as we close, is this the Jesus that you thought you knew? What if this surprising king is what you've been waiting for your whole life? Let me just ask, who or what are you waiting for to make your life okay? Who or what are you waiting for to make your life fundamentally okay? To fulfill you and to fulfill your life and to fulfill your aching sense and hunger for purpose. Sit on that question, maybe sit on it for a month. But be honest. And then Lord, and then would the Lord come to you in your honesty and say, I am the fulfillment of that desire in only me. It's funny, in Matthew, the word fulfilled happens eleven times. Matthew was really into this word fulfillment. He wanted us to see that the story of God, the big story of the world, only finds its fulfillment in King Jesus. And if that's true for the big story of the world, then that is also true for your story as well. Jesus alone fulfills. And so let's come to him this morning with open hands. Lord, we do that. We ask that you would indeed bring that desired and desperate sense of fulfillment in our life. We ask, Lord, that you would meet us in that honest place where we have been trusting and waiting on other things besides you. And would you, in that space, do the miracle of giving us a peace that transcends our understanding that comes from relaxing at the foot of your throne. The forever throne of the surprising king. And as we rest at the foot of your throne, Jesus, would we look around and see other people who are also desperately needy? Would we experience fellowship with them as well? So that we would never be alone. Bring this, Lord, by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.